I think my leadership style has evolved over time. For me, it's become increasingly important to to understand where others are coming from and what their aspirations are and what their um, challenges might be and to really almost see every engagement as a kind of mentoring that it's necessary to really connect with people and understand where they're at in order to for them to make their best contribution and I think that's become more and more apparent to me as I've stepped into greater leadership roles. Today the conversation continues between our host Isabel Tolland, Director of Aileen Sage Architects and our guest Megan Dwyer, Principal at John Wardle Architects. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Isabel. So JWO's practice all over Australia in virtually every state, and you continue have to have projects spread out across the country. All of these projects have been run out of your Melbourne office generally, and now mm. um, you know you have the Sydney office as well. But you've also worked in collaboration with other firms quite a bit to deliver those projects. Mm. Could you tell us what the main drivers were for that decision in those kind of collaborations? Were they quite different in each case, specific to particular projects and that kind of thing? And how have you worked in those collaborations from a kind of formal perspective in terms of defining roles and responsibilities and ensuring their productive and successful collaborations? You're right. It is something that we do a lot and uh, we really value the opportunities to to do that. I think the purpose of the collaborations have actually changed over time. When we were in that sort of initial growth phase, it was often that a client would like us like to have us deeply involved in a project, but preferred to have a, an experienced pair of safe hands mm. sort of behind us. And so, some of those early collaborations were about about uh, supporting us in in a delivery technical and sort of delivery role. When we've worked interstate, um, well, many clients have a strong preference that there are people on the ground. And if you do think about the locations we've worked in, it would be virtually sort of impossible to to um, establish studios. And so we've um, partnered with local practices in, in order to have the people on the ground. And they've typically, well, in every case, they've offered us really great insight to local circumstances, whether it's the kind of context, the physical context that we're working in, or whether it's how industry works in that particular location. But we we value that a great deal. Uh, and typically, those practices have then supported uh, the delivery of the of the project. So there's yeah. been a um, a role through sort of documentation and uh, construction services. We've also partnered with um, some practices in a sort of equal design collaboration. And so Melbourne School of Design, for example, was yeah. with Nadar from uh, Boston. We we have um, one or two of those kinds of collaborations going at the moment mm-hmm. um, and we really again that sort of in a way inviting external expertise into to offer a different viewpoint on a particular design challenge and so we always learn a great deal from doing that mm. yeah so you know quite different reasons but all all very important to, to the practice and to the growth of the practice and working with international practices then across mm. you know the globe how have you 
done that? Are, are there particular tools or technology that has facilitated those processes? Yeah, and that too has changed with time. But mm. it, I think to put it as simply as I can, the, the greatest benefit is being able to share a desktop and yep. to be able to pick up a pen and you know swap it back and forth between each end and sort of mark up a set of drawings. And so mm. the, way, the way that we would tend to work is um, particularly through a – Design phase is to to meet regularly, and if it's a a very sort of intense period of time, it might be daily. And so, finding the right time of day where it's reasonable for both parties to join, um, mm. we'll just set up a regular um, conversation and and equip ourselves with a, an electronic pen and yep. um, get to work that way. Is there any ever any kind of heated discussion of a direction a project should take or have you always found that it's kind of landed comfortably between each party agreeing? Look, in a way, the reason that we we do it is for new perspectives and so the conversation around resolving what a project should be is is kind of exactly the reason that we do it and mm. so sometimes they you know the two perspectives can be quite different yes. uh, and it is it's really through the conversation and the testing options that we kind of resolve that um, one way or the other and in many ways it's kind of those moments that are where the greatest insight comes so perhaps that's uh, i feel like that maybe is is something that's quite reflective of the practice too, that you are quite open-minded and you seek these external perspectives and you are open to the, that kind of criticism or alternative perspectives that mm. are brought to the practice too. So perhaps it's around like an attitude to that collaboration where it's not like this push and pull, like there is this tug for who who is the, the key creative in the, in the kind of collaboration that maybe has resulted in these quite successful collaborations because you've collaborated mm. twice now with Nadar, haven't you, as we well? We have, and yes, yeah. Also the Tandarum Bridge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, I think that's fair to say, mm. um, yes. And one thing about big practice, we think, is that it does take the hands of many and it takes technical expertise and mm. design insight and um, people who can write beautifully. And yeah. yeah, so there's a whole lot of contributions that, uh, come together, I guess, to create a project and, and we need to value all of those. Mm. It's mm. a collective pursuit. Yeah. So. yeah. Which is quite interesting, I think, in terms of the practice that is named after one person in a way. Mm. Yeah. So how yeah. is that a kind of, not a point of contention necessarily, but something you have discussed much in terms of the practice or that it's been, you know, obviously the, the project started off perhaps, did it originally start just with John or with, yeah. Yeah, so it was. So the sole practitioner at the time. Mm, at home, Right. Um, in okay. fact, yeah, and he he often tells a story where when he was naming the practice, he called it John Wardle Architects, plural, yep. and thought that was audacious. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that the, the um, practices sort of exceeded his own expectations about um, what it um, might have been. Yeah, so, I mean, it's uh, it served us well for a very long period of time. The practice is a little over 30 years old now. Um, I think most people would recognise that it is a collective pursuit and that there are many voices uh, at the table. John has also sort of initiated a succession plan, if you if you like, mm. and so we, we, we're now a practice of, in fact, four directors, John, Stefan, myself, and we've recently uh, brought uh, James Loder in mm. as a director. We're contemplating uh, one other. And so we are shifting toward a model of, of um, collective Leadership and that—that's across necessarily across all aspects of the of the practice. 
Are there particular, you know, is that a tricky sort of transition in a way or has it been tricky? Obviously, as you um, note, the practice is recognised as this collective practice and very collaborative you know, within the team that you have. But are there, you know, expectations from clients that that John is always there and there is a lot of pressure for him to be present for, for you know, clients to feel like you're actually providing the mm, premium service the to them? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, well, look, um, what we the, the way that we describe sort of John's role really is that in order for him to contribute to really broadly across the mm. practice he he can't be the person that a particular client sees every day yeah uh, and so we sort of try to manage it a bit that way um, mm. some clients do others in fact I have a client in Perth who I don't think I've ever met John yet right yeah so that's also um, changing yeah. as as we go and it's um, something that we sort of navigate case by case almost yes. yeah sure in terms of the structure of the practice you mentioned you have four, soon to be five, um, directors of the practice. And then mm. there are seven principals, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have a structure, you know, of associates and how how does that structure work in terms of the management of um, the office generally? You know, are people brought in a different kind of levels of management or and what's the kind of um, formal structure for progression through the office as well? Well, in some ways the way we think about this is that there are – project roles and practice roles. Mm. And when we make someone an associate or a senior associate, that's in a way in recognition of the contribution they make to practice. And so um, we we do have, we have the principal group, we have senior associates and then associates. And there's sort of an increasing expectation that they contribute to practice as they, as they move through that sort of structure. And so it's, there's no sort of um, formula, I guess, for mm how you get there but we do we, we we really value people who are willing to contribute to their practice in different ways and you know we, we've just had two of our young associates sort of um, amp up the, the conversation around sustainability for example and yep. they're very committed and uh, very knowledgeable about that and we're uh, we're with them we're just sort of reviewing I guess the way that we speak to sustainability or advocate let's say for sustainability um, mm-hmm. so that's a a really wonderful contribution that they're making. So yeah, you JWA were one of the kind of first major practices, I suppose, to sign on to support the Australian Architects Declare Climate and Biodiversity Emergency Movement. What kind of policies are you starting to look at implementing through this kind of um, it, these initiatives and discussions that you're starting to have? Well, look, I think for us, we, we find that a lot of the briefs we work with do stipulate a certain level of of sustainability. And I guess I think, well, I think one where we can sort of have influence really is just in the early stages of a project where we might be able to, to uh, introduce an expectation for sustainable outcomes if it's not inherent in the brief or or perhaps increase the expectations around what what can be achieved and so in order to do that we really need to to know what the possibilities are and advocate that way mm, i think that's the moment where we can have most influence just moving on a bit to mentoring and leadership let's say were there any particular people that influenced you during your career maybe that you had as a mentor or perhaps ongoing mentors that you have Absolutely. Look, I've always been incredibly um, grateful to Rob McGoran at McGoran Soon, McGoran Giannini Soon, 
he gave me my first job in architecture and he's someone that I can pick up the phone and, and talk to if I uh, like and I still see him around. He also does a lot of work in the university sector so we often see each other across the other mm. side of the table which is lovely. Right. So I appreciate his his guidance. Um, David Whitney, a, a fantastic, highly respected town planner who was at um, Perrotline Matheson, a director there. He was also incredibly encouraging and I'd often stop by his office to talk about things. He was a delight. I would have to say that um, John Wardle has been incredibly encouraging and offered incredible opportunities to me so I'm incredibly grateful to that. I think there are, you know, many sort of friends and industry colleagues who I would um, speak with from time to time who in a way offer a form of mentoring, mm. although we neither of us would probably think about it that way. But And, and again, it's sort of seeking the views and perspectives of, of many that uh, I think is important. Yeah. In terms of the philosophy around people and the culture in the workplace at JWA, a number of people have kind of mentioned to me that they feel like it's, it is quite different um, at your practice mm. um, compared with other practices. What do you think that it is that's particularly different about the work culture there? Yeah. We often reflect on this because it is very important to, you know, retain what's working and change what isn't working. Um, I think that as a practice we have managed to to create a culture where we can truly collaborate. And mm. I know the word collaboration is thrown around an awful lot these days, but I, I do think that um, there's enormous respect for for individuals and what they bring to a project. And so there's not necessarily a scramble to be the project leader because mm. there might be a, a highly valued project role that someone would prefer to do than mm. be a project leader. Yep. For example, we've got incredible... People who can work in um, BIM in quite incredible ways and resolve really sort of complex aspects of our um, project work. We've mm -hmm. got incredible interior designers and we've it, our students and young graduates will bring sort of new digital expertise into the studio, which we really value as well. Yeah. I think we work in extraordinary times. We've got access to those, um, you know, the full range of sort of digital skills, but we still have people who can draw by hand mm. or who might make a cardboard model. And so we've got this incredible wealth of of inputs, if you like, and yep. um, we've, we value all of those. So we think that we manage to be more collaborative, less hierarchical in the yeah. way that we work. Okay. How do you manage that across such a large practice? Like is it sort of set up as a series of studios or particular people that kind of take on – that work in teams in particular areas, like your focus is perhaps around the institutional or educational and public projects mm, and mm. Um, you still do residential projects at the other scale, single residential work. Are there people that sort of focus on those projects more than others and or is it more sort of skill-based, as you say, you know, when models, you know, people have particular mm. skills in model making so they might share their skills between teams or how do you how do you distribute them, yes, that kind of very wealth of um, talent? Yes, very good question. Look, we we do have – there are people who sort of might settle into sectors or project types um, for a bit. We just know that there's incredible value in transferring knowledge and skills from one sector to another. So we, we do like to um, keep it a little bit fluid mm. where we can. There are some people who would work really widely across many, many um, different kinds of projects – Look, it, it, for us, it, it it probably places even greater emphasis on that um, resourcing task, which we yep. were discussing earlier, mm -hmm. um, and to know, you know, when certain people might be available to make a certain contribution becomes really important. Yeah, other times we 
may not have the choice as to whether we build a cardboard model or we, say, build a virtual reality model. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of also working with, you know, what's available too. In terms of this kind of distribution of project typologies that you do work across, the practice has always maintained that interest or involvement in in smaller residential projects or single Mm. residential projects. Mm. Has that been important to the practice? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's sort of where the practice began when John was um, sole practitioner and then with a very small team. Uh, He in particular really loves to do that kind of work and I, I think, you know, you can trace back a lot of the ideas that we work with today to to early sort of residential uh, projects. So they've been really formative for us in terms of developing a design approach. Mm. Um, we still think of them that way. We just know that – I guess that's not the only way that we're sort of developing our, our design approach. So that's something that will always kind of continue, do you think, even though the practice is very large? You know, there is a kind of desire and ambition within the practice to maintain – Yes, we would like to. And I think that, I mean, the other value of the residential work, I think, is that it it has taught us how to make sort of intimate human-scaled spaces that that people really um, love to be in. And I think that we have been able to sort of transfer some of that Mm. um, to our much larger uh, projects. And people often say, in fact, the the name of our recent book was This Building Likes Me, and, and that was an observation that someone made about a visit to a building that it is sort of designed with a certain level of empathy. And I, mm. I think that can't be separated from the residential work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's very interesting. Mm. That's a good point. In terms of the office culture, so you currently have a studio in Collingwood um, in Melbourne and that was a project for the practice as well. I understand setting it mm. up and it's quite interesting as a setup that it isn't just the office itself. Could mm. you talk us a bit through that idea of that? that office or studio in Melbourne? Uh, yes. So that we looked for a long time to find a, a spot for a new office. We just decided uh, that it was time we had a, a space that reflected more about us. Um, we, we had, we'd loved where we had been. We just felt it was time to, to move. We eventually found this this property and it was in Collingwood and, um, you know, we, we've been there for seven years now. So back then, Collingwood was just about to transition, but it hadn't yet. If you go there today, there's a lot of construction activity and it's changing quite rapidly. And we sort of thought in in moving to that kind of neighbourhood, post-industrial neighbourhood, we sort of we sort of felt that that part of Collingwood was actually zoned to exclude residential development. And the intent of that zoning was that it would support um, small business actually, and so in, in, when we moved there, there was not um, there were not many signs of that, and we just felt that we wanted to create a little bit of sort of activity around us, and so the, the building that we bought was large enough to support the inclusion of others. Uh, and at the ground floor, we have a screen printing studio, spacecraft, um, and our bus uh, galleries, which is an independent um, artist run uh, gallery space. Uh, and a cafe, of course. There weren't many in in that neighbourhood at the time. Uh, and then we have the two upper levels. And we really thought about it as an opportunity to kind of create, well, almost a, a campus of creative uh, thinkers and sort of allied disciplines. And um, that's that's proven to be very successful. And in fact, that um, was written up in the in the Place Economy, a book that was published a year or two ago. Right. Great. Yeah. That's mm. interesting. I suppose, yeah, again, it's like the the kind of 
the way the practice operates in and your approach to design really translates into kind of every aspect of how the practice works too from a day-to-day level to, mm. you know, your projects over a long period of time too. With the um, having this kind of, I guess, united pre- or precinct um, of a variety of organisations coming under the one roof that are all kind of creative, is there much crossover between or kind of interaction between the different organisations within the studio or within the building? Within the building. Yeah. We have uh, worked with Spacecraft um, Studios a number of times to, to create custom fabrics for um, various projects. We've really enjoyed that. We, as a practice, we really like working with artists and so having that connection to what's happening in the art world is a really, really lovely thing and there have been times when we sort of have someone on their board and there have been times when the exhibitions or the events that they've held there are really relevant to what we do and we've mm. been participants in those too. Yeah, so it's a, it, it is a lovely a lovely opportunity to kind of work with allied creative um, mm. industries. Yeah. And there is there a series of talks or programs that you also kind of host within practice? Yeah, so uh, On Top of the World is a regular event that we hold in the, in the Melbourne studio and um, there are moments when we invite usually artists to come in and talk about uh, their creative practice. Uh, and so we'll invite a, a group of um, friends of the practice and clients and staff are welcome to join and we'll sort of have have the opportunity to engage with a, another creative practice. Maybe it's this kind of idea of vibrance of, you know, um, inviting other people in that ensures a vibrant workplace and atmosphere that you have this these kind of regular events that break that kind of otherwise regular day-to-day routine and Mm. and thinking around this kind of culture and workplace and what you offer to your kind of broader team, what do you feel that is kind of key to hiring and retaining top talent in the industry? Oh, look, we find that, I mean, we are fortunate. We do find that top talent will often sort of seek us uh, Mm. out. In terms of retaining talent, I think it, it does um, come back to sort of offering opportunities to participate. And by that I mean, you know, when I was speaking earlier about really valuing the inputs of everyone, I think mm. there is there is a real sense that people who join will have the opportunity to, to – will have some kind of agency and, and, and can offer their expertise in a really productive way. And I think that creates a, a fantastic – creative environment for people to be in and and that's probably really important to retaining retaining talent so it's not just about a, a straight career path but it's about a day-to-day contribution really mm. that's important great and you think that that kind of helps to kind of keep people motivated as well yeah the course of yeah absolutely projects Coming back a little bit to the this kind of question around gender diversity in the practice um and it is kind of a broader question as well, but do you have um, a, a structured sort of mentorship and um, leadership program in place for your staff within the practice? Yes, we've, we have been doing a little bit of work around that. We have a, um, a sort of opt-in mentoring program that's for mentors and mentees. Mm. And uh, um, so we do try to support those who are uh, keen to do that uh, kind of thing. Uh, and that might be uh, – that's fairly – Informal, it might mm. just be a regular sort of catch up over lunch or or coffee or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had had some sort of development activities that we've done. Um, so so we we've focused on perhaps our working methodologies and and understanding 
those better, often reflecting with the group on how we might have gone and how we could improve. Um, and so there's this, in a way, constant review of of what we're doing um, and with the opportunity for many voices to come to the table to understand that. In this idea of leadership, what skills and experience do you feel are most important to be an effective leader? That's a very good question. Well, look, I mean, I think everyone has their own style, their own leadership style, and uh, it can take a little while to connect connect with that. And I, for me, it's um, very much um, about being authentic and um, finding my purpose and being able to sort of encourage others that way. Do you admire anyone in particular for being a great leader um, and why? Look, I've there have been many people that I've worked with in my career who I've really admired and, in fact, you know, I really admire uh, Russell Elliott who we've worked with at Melbourne Uni and at Monash University for his ability to really sort of navigate the complexity of that environment and and keep his eye on, on the objectives that they began with. I think he's, he's uh, really remarkable to... To watch, I really admire Sarah Slattery, managing director at Slattery Australia. She has provided great leadership in term, particularly in uh, gender diversity, mm-hmm. uh, and is is very encouraging of women in industry, young people in in, in industry too. Phil Gardner, who's the managing director at Irwin Consult, is really engaged with industry colleagues and and is is very generous about offering advice and and guidance. Yeah, there are there are a number. It's important to reflect on that because mm. you know it's, you often come across these people in your sort of day to day working life, and it, it's um, good to just sit back and think about them in their own right and and the contribution that they've made. But yeah, there mm. there are. There are many. For you as a leader at the practice, mm. do you feel, are there any particular skills or key lessons that you've learnt over the course of that role for yourself as well, especially as the practice has grown over time? Has, has your method of leadership, let's say, changed or had to adapt uh, as the practice grew? Look, I think my leadership style has evolved over time. For me, it's become increasingly important to, to understand where others are coming from and what what their aspirations are and what their um, challenges might be and to really almost see every engagement as a kind of mentoring that it's necessary to really connect with people and understand where they're at in order to for them to make their best contribution and I think that's become more and more apparent to me as as I've stepped into greater leadership roles. Have you? Do you find that hard though to keep that personal connection with so many people mm. that you now have at the practice, especially where a practice of that size? I assume you kind of have a practice manager in place. So, but you, as you say, it is important to maintain those personal connections too. So, how do you manage that across so many people? Well, look, I also encourage it in others, and mm. and so if I can't engage with everyone on a team, I I will often remind the team leaders that. It's important to understand where people are at or what they're struggling with or what their aspirations are. So it sort of, it be- again, becomes a sort of cultural yep. thing, I think. Thank you again, Megan and Isabel. Join us next week as the conversation between Isabel and Megan continues and for what will be the last episode of 2019. We'll take a small break and be back in 2020 to share more insights from some of our industry's most recognised leaders. In addition, we'll be delivering some special episodes with interesting and controversial topics such as competitions, practical episodes covering specification tips and CPD points, and discussions on relevant topics for your practice.
The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.